Nice to see you all. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff and want to uh, extend my greeting to you along with the greetings you've already received. I'm glad that you're here. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving week. And as Amy said at the, at the outset of our service this morning, we not only recognize that for, uh, for many, uh, a week like this, a holiday week can be one of fun and celebration and peace and rest and all those things. But for some, it can be a week of heaviness depending on what's going on in your current situation. So if you're dealing with loss or you're dealing with loneliness or grief or the heaviness of a holiday season, we want you to know we see you and we love you and we don't want you to walk this thing alone. We don't want you to feel like you're by yourself. Part of what it means to be the body of Christ or to be a church in a local neighborhood like this one is to walk alongside each other in the midst of whatever we're facing. And so if you're carrying the holiday season with some heaviness, let us carry that with you. And all it takes is for you just to kind of let us know who you are and what's going on and how we can love you well. We want to do that. So uh, you're joining us at a great time if you're a guest. And if you're not, if you've been around for a long time, you're also here at a great time. We're in the middle of a study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now here's the deal. We're going to finish up the second half of chapter 7, which we just read today. Then we're going to press pause on this for about four Four weeks during the Advent season, we'll have a, kind of a, a ramp up towards Christmas in the next few weeks, and then we'll jump back into First Corinthians, starting in First Corinthians eight, right in the new year. So in 2023, in January, we'll jump right back into First Corinthians, and then we'll finish the book out. But you're catching us at a good time. First Corinthians seven is interesting, and if you're hearing it for the first time, or if you're a guest or from out of town or whatever, you hear that text read and you think like, "Oh man, what's this going to be?" Well, it's it's actually very interesting, and it's actually not that difficult to understand even what he's pointing at. So. What we saw as we looked at it last week is that in this section of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he's responding to a letter that they wrote to him. And we don't have that letter, so we don't know exactly whether they were asking him questions, which he's now answering, or if they were making assertions, which he's now questioning. We don't know which way to look at that, but we know that what he's writing is a response to what they have sent to him. And so in this, he begins uh, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7 to talk about celibacy within marriage. What we suppose here, and sort of putting the pieces together, is that there were those who would become Christians who who had decided that in order to be the best possible Christians they could be, or the best possible followers of God, that what they needed to do was to become celibate inside of their marriage. And so here Paul kind of pushes back and he goes, hey, you've got this thing a little jumbled up. And he goes on to affirm uh, what he then sort of cements here in verse 17, which is the crux of his thinking. But that is that when God called you, he called you as you are, and there is nothing you need to add or subtract to that. One of the great emphases that we saw last week was him saying, hey, you know what? For me, he says, I'm, I'm single and I'm great. I'm content in singleness. I don't feel desire to be married. And actually, it allows me to focus on the things of God. We'll see him reiterate some of that in the last half of the chapter. And he says, if that's for you and that, that's appealing to you, you shouldn't feel like you have to be married in order to please God. But if you're the kind of person who desperately wants to be married, you shouldn't feel like you have to be single in order to please God. What he's saying again and again and again is what he articulates here in in verse 17. I would say 17 through 24 is really his philosophy in approaching all of these issues. But he says this in 17. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So when he's talking about singleness and when he's talking about divorce and when he's talking about marriage and when he's talking about celibacy, as he gets on further in this chapter, we'll look at it in a second. He talks about the way engaged people should interact with each other and whether widows should be married. Remember, Paul is giving us 
Some of the things he's repeating that are, that are laws that Jesus himself laid down. But some of these things he's framing in a sense of his opinion or his perception. Or he'll even say, this is my judgment. It's not the Lord, but this is, this is the way I perceive the thing. So he's saying, for me, singleness works. But he's affirming that that's not for everybody. He's affirming that each of us come from different places and have to follow God in a way that is discerning. And pays attention to different criteria, listening to uh, the, the rules that God has laid down. So by the time he gets to 17 and he says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, that assignation, that assignment that God has made, we want to be really clear what he's talking about. When he says my rule, not just in the church in Corinth, but the church around the world, my rule or my encouragement is that you lead the life you were called to. That can get a little fuzzy because the idea of calling gets used in a lot of funny ways. You know, if you've been around Christians for any period of time, you'll hear people talk about calling. They'll say, oh, I feel really called to be an architect or I feel really called to go to Taco Bell or I felt really called to invest all my money in cryptocurrency or whatever. And it gets hard to know like what is... What are we talking about here? Are we just talking about somebody's desire and they're, they're stamping God's seal of approval on that by, by calling it a calling? Are we talking about a, a voice from heaven where someone said, get thee hence to Taco Bell? Or like what? Because it gets used loosely, it can be confusing. When Paul says, hey, live the life that God's given you and be obedient to the calling he's placed upon your life, we need to understand what he means by calling or the whole rest of the thing unravels. For us, in the context of 1 Corinthians, it's easy to know what he means by calling because he articulated that very clearly in the first chapter. So, for the purposes of our study this morning, go with me back to 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, and this will be a refresher for some of you, in his greeting at the very beginning, he says, he he talks about who he's writing to. And he says this in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 1. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So right at the outset, he defines who he's talking to. He says, I'm writing to Christians. I'm writing to the church. And what makes them the church is that they are those who have been called by God to call upon God. And that's a very basic and simple definition of what it means to be called. That God is the first mover. It is his impetus or his action that calls us to himself. And when he calls us to himself, he calls us in a variety of different places. When he calls us, some of us are young and some of us are old and some of us are in college and some of us are in high school and some of us are in our 50s. And God calls us in a variety of places, but he calls us all the same way and he calls us all to the same thing. We are called by God. That's his action and his will. He calls us. To be those who were dependent upon him, who were devoted to him, who were dedicated to him, called to call upon his name. That's the definition of what it means to be a Christian. You look further down, talking about calling in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called to be followers or into fellowship with the Lord Jesus, who is king. And then all the way down at the end of chapter 1 in verse 26, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's he saying about calling? 
He's saying you were called from a variety of different places and you weren't called because you were fancy or because you were necessarily smart or because you were particularly rich or because you were necessarily powerful. You were called in a variety of different places in different ways and there is diversity in that call. But th- though that there's a diverse group of us that are called, we are all called to the same thing and we're called in the same way and we become the same thing upon his calling. When God draws us to Christ, to the fellowship of his son, So what he's talking about here is that our calling is when God draws us to the truth of the gospel. The gospel, as we understand it, is this, that each and every one of us are busted. And it doesn't take a brain surgeon to look around the world and see that mankind is broken, right? We look at our own lives and we recognize that we are flawed, that we are selfish, that we are greedy, that we are are motivated by all the wrong things. That brokenness, that fundamental brokenness in us, the Bible identifies that as sin. It's a failure to glorify God with our lives. And that brokenness not only is present in the life of every human being, but that brokenness separates us from God who loves us and created us for relationship with him. So God wanting relationship with us, knowing that we're broken, sends Jesus, right? Fully God and fully man. Jesus comes to the earth and he takes the sin upon the world, the sin of the world upon himself. Not because he deserved that, but by his choice, he lays down his life. He is a sacrificial lamb, an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. You and me, he dies in our place and sheds his blood and is buried dead. But he doesn't stay dead. Three days later, the Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. And in so doing, he not only paid the penalty for our sin, but then he shows that he has resurrection power. The ability to make dead things live. And he extends to us by his grace and through our faith that same resurrection life. God draws us to the truth of the gospel and when we believe in Christ, we join the fellowship of his son and we are made wholly new. We go from death to life. We are new creatures, right? So in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, follow this, when he says, my rule in all the churches, the thing I'm always reminding people is, let your calling, the call by God, to be devoted to God, be the thing that defines you. Let that be the thing that defines you, right? Live a life according to the place that God has called you and assigned you. And he's called you in unique and various places, but he's called us all to the same thing. It's this great equalizer, the calling of God. Because no matter who you are, where you come from, no matter what you look like, no matter how much money you have, we are called in the same way and we are called to the same thing, to the glory of God and the good of others. He says, my rule is let that be the thing that drives you, right? Let that be the thing that defines you above all else, your calling. And he doesn't mean your calling to be a lawyer or to be a school teacher or calling to be married or to be single. He's not talking about that individual sense of what do you want to do. He's talking about the overarching calling to be people whose lives are devoted to Christ. And so all the rule he's given before verse 17 and all the rule he'll give after verse 25, it all falls under this heading. That the most important thing about you is that God chose you and he chose you where you are to use you as you are, Right? We don't define ourselves. We don't let the cultural pressure define us. We don't let Christian pressure define us. We don't, we don't sort of uh, succumb to the pressure of any outside force to say you need something plus the call of God to be worthy. It is the call of God alone that makes you worthy, right? I remember uh, I took my family to Legoland when my kids were little. I've told some of you this story before, but it's, it's a good illustration of this idea. I told my kids, uh, you can get a souvenir. Every kid can get one souvenir. I know we got kids in the service today. Think about what that would be like if your parents said you can get one souvenir, anything you want, right? So I told my kids, pick a souvenir. 
And three of my kids picked a souvenir really quick. They all kind of knew what they wanted, T-shirts or hats or Lego sets or whatever. But my, one of my sons, Hank, who's actually here, he's home from college, Hank, uh, he goes, Dad, I know what I want. He says, the only thing I want uh, from Legoland is a, uh, I just, the only thing I want is a finger necklace. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't know what you're talking about, you know? And he goes, you know, a finger necklace. And I was like, no, I'm not sure I do know, but okay, let's look, you know? So we look at the little stand. We look at the little gift shop. We can't find the thing he wants. I actually even go up to the counter and I have to kind of embarrassingly say to the guy at the counter, like, um, do you guys sell uh, finger necklaces? And the guy's like, I don't know what that is. And I was like, me neither. I got this dumb kid, you know, what I'm supposed to do. And, uh, they're like, I don't think we make those. I don't think, I don't even know what that is, but I don't think we sell it. You know, like, I don't think that's the thing we have here. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to keep looking. So throughout the day, I keep saying to Hank, like, don't you, wouldn't you like to have like a hat or wouldn't you like to have a pair of Legoland socks or wouldn't you like to have this little Lego guy or whatever? He doesn't, no, dad, the only thing I want is a finger necklace. Please, dad, it's the only thing I want. You know, so we keep looking, no dice. We get, it's the end of the day. Legoland's closing. We're at that very last kind of gift shop on the way out. And I'm like, he's going to get something here or he's going to get nothing. And so we go in there and we're looking around. And all of a sudden I hear my son's voice from across the, across the store. He goes, Dad, I found it. And I'm like, mm, I doubt it, you know, whatever. So I go over there and he's standing in front of this one wall. And this one wall has a display and it's got all of this one kind of thing on it. And as I get over, I look at him and he's standing in front of it like this. And he goes, finger necklaces. And uh, I looked at him and I looked at the wall and I grabbed one of the things. And I was like, you mean keychains and uh because that's all it was it was just keychains right i'm like these are keychains and he takes the keychain out of my hand and he puts it on his finger and he goes finger necklaces <laughs> and i said at the time i was like hank that thing has a name right that thing that with the little ring and the little guy attached with that's called a keychain and the guy who made that the person who invented that he got to define it he got to decide what it's called he gets to decide how it's used and what its purpose is we don't all willy-nilly just get to redefine these things right they are used in the way that the person who created them intended well that illustration is perfect for what paul's saying to us because we feel all this pressure and some of it's external pressure But for the people in Corinth, they were feeling this pressure like, hey, if you're actually a good follower of Jesus, then you need to be a follower of Apollos or you need to be a follower of Cephas. If you're really a good follower of Jesus, then you need to be celibate in your marriage or you need to be unmarried or you need to be, you know, you need to break off your engagement or you need to get engaged and married as quick as you can. They were feeling all this pressure from the culture externally to be something other than simply called by God and enough. To be something other than in Christ and let that be enough. There was things that the culture was trying to add. And that's not just an external pressure, by the way. That's also an internal pressure. We do this to ourselves. We look at our own lives many times and we go, well, you know, as soon as I get my college degree, then I'm really going to serve God. Or as soon as I make my first million dollars, then I'm really going to serve God. Or as soon as I get married or as soon as I, whatever, whatever it is in your life that you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm not there yet, but I am really going to be faithful or I'm really going to be obedient or I'm really going to honor God with my life in whatever the next chapter is. Well, that next chapter will just keep getting pushed off. What Paul is affirming here is who you are and what you are and the way you are when God called you is enough for God to use you in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. When he called you, he made you enough. When he saved you, he made you enough. And there isn't anything you need to add that will make you a better follower of God, nor is there anything that you should wait down the road until you have acquired that makes you somehow more acceptable or usable by God. 
Now he gives a couple of specific examples before we get to the heart of what he's saying. I want to hit them real quick just because I don't want to, I don't want to skip them, but like he's done at the beginning of first Corinthians seven, he gives some practical examples that have to do with relationships. So let's just look at this quickly from 25 on. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment. So here again, he's saying, Jesus didn't say anything about this specifically, but I'm giving you my opinion on this. This is, this is my take. I give you my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, this is, there's an interesting uh, little side note here. He talks about this present distress. And actually, in this section, he'll talk about that three different ways. He says in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good, etc., etc. In 29, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, right? And then if you look all the way down to 31, he says, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Three times in verses 25 through 31, he sort of talks about the, the present distress or the passing of time. And, and theologians and commentators are a little split on what he, what he might mean. Some will say he's talking about his eschatological perception. And if you don't know what that is, let me help you understand. But he may be talking about his perception of the end of human history. He may be saying, because we believe Jesus is coming back and the story of human history on earth is, a, is about to be finished as far as this chapter of it goes, there is a ticking clock and there's an urgency. So because we're in the last days, it might be what he's saying, because we're in what he perceives to be the last days, uh, you, you don't need to worry about relationships and whatever because Jesus is going to come and we're going to be in the new age. It's also possible, so it is, it's totally possible that he's talking about the fact that, that, that we have to live our lives aware of, of a clock, if you will, right? That we have a limited amount of time. It's also possible, some theologians and commentators will say, that he's referring to a very practical dilemma in their culture at the time, which was a famine that had occurred at the time in which Paul is writing this, right? There was a, there was a, a famine in that area, and it was creating all kinds of social and cultural and political distress. So he may be talking about a very practical issue, much like what we're seeing in America with COVID or with political tension or whatever else. He may be talking about something that, that is something that's happening in his moment of time, or he may be talking about the end of human history on earth as we understand it, right? And I, what I want to say to you today is we don't know which one of those it is. And honestly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether he's talking about the return of Christ or whether he's talking about a current cultural crisis. Either way, the emphasis is the same. The emphasis is don't let things that aren't central become central to you. Don't let things that aren't the most important become the most important to you. Listen to the way he says this. He says in 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Well, it's clear here that what he's saying is, in his opinion, you can be more devoted and dedicated to the service of Christ and others if you're not divided in your attention, and marriage can, can be a, a thing that divides your attention, appropriately so. So he says, you know, based on the time and the current situation we're in, in my opinion, it'd be better for you to stay single. But, but let me be clear. If you want to get married, that's not wrong. And if you decide to get married, that's not a problem, but it is going to add distraction to your life. Here he goes on to say, this is what I mean, verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and let those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Well, he's not saying that married people should act like they're not married, right? That would go against everything else he's just said. But what he's saying is all of these things have the potential to become the sole focus of your life. That a married person can decide that their marriage or dedication to their spouse is the only thing that matters. Or the raising of their children is the only thing that matters. And what he's saying is because we live in a temporal time, whether he's talking about a current crisis or whether he's talking about the end of this chapter before the coming of Christ, either way, we live in a temporary time. And if you've made temporary things hold the value of eternal things, then your life is out of order. So he says, because the time is short, a married person should live not as if their marriage is the most important thing. That would be wrong. A person who's grieving shouldn't live as if their grief is the most important thing. A person who's joyful and celebrating shouldn't live as though celebration was the most important thing. Those who are buying and selling goods, that's fine, but that can't be everything because we live in a temporary time. Your interactions with the culture and the social structures and whatever, those are fine, but they they can't be everything. Because we live in a temporary time. Well, it's true whether he's talking about his eschatology or whether he's just talking about a current crisis. And it's true for us today as well. He'll go on to sort of double down on this. Look at this in verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And when he says anxieties here, that's not anxiety like we think of it uh, sort of culturally today. He's talking about fragmentation or fracturing. He says, I don't want you to be fragmented in your devotion. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be fractured in your dedication to your calling. To be a person called by God to live according to the assignment he's given you. He says, the married man, verse 33, is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Well, it's interesting because, to be honest, and Paul knows this, A married woman is not solely devoted to her husband's uh, care and concern, right? A married man is not solely devoted to that. We're we're always divided. It's about prioritization. An unmarried woman is not functionally solely devoted to devotion of Christ. Neither is an unmarried man solely devoted to that. But what is Paul's concern? Paul's concern are not these absolutes, but rather saying, you have to organize your life knowing who you are, knowing what you're hungry for, knowing how you're wired, knowing what God has called you to and how he's built you, you have to organize your life in which nothing becomes a distraction to the thing that should be the sole focus of who you are. Does that make sense? Don't let anything be a sidetrack. All these other things are fine. He's not saying you can't buy and sell goods. He's not saying there aren't times for grieving and times for celebration. There are. They just can't be everything. What he's saying is, don't make things that aren't everything out to be everything, right? He'll reiterate that one other way with regard to engaged people in 36. He says, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever's firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he'll do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. He's like, I have a preference here, and my preference is that you're not married because you can be solely devoted, but the reality is all of us are different. He says, what works for me might not work for you, and the reality is you've got to pay attention to that, and if you decide to marry the person you're engaged to, that's not wrong. 
the only thing that would be wrong is making your marriage or your engagement or your singleness or your celibacy or anything else more important than your devotion to Christ. What he's trying to do is to get us solely devoted to Christ. Why? Because that's what we're called to. That's what defines us, our calling. So now we circle back to 17. He talks to widows at the end. He talks about his own leading of the spirit. But in 17 through 24, we really get the crux of his thinking. Here's, here's where we'll finish this morning. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. It's really interesting. He's going to give us two illustrations. One has to do with circumcision and uncircumcision, and one has to do with slavery and freedom. And I want to be really careful. We'll we'll talk about the slavery piece in just a second. But first, let's look at the circumcision thing. There was pressure in the day and age in which he's writing. There was pressure from people going two different directions. For uncircumcised people who'd become followers of Jesus, there was pressure from the Judaizers to say, you're actually not a good disciple of Jesus. You're not a good follower of God unless you go and get yourself circumcised. And Paul's saying that isn't true. They were called by God just like you're called by God. And whatever position or whatever situation they were in physically and socially, God called them in that situation and they can remain just like they are. There was also pressure during this day and age for those who had been circumcised because they were living in a culture in which uh, sometimes they would take heat for being that. People who were followers of Jesus who would say, I didn't need to do this because I'm free in Christ. And so they would undergo a procedure to, to sort of try and revert that physically the way it would look. I don't want to get into the details on it, right? But the deal was they were feeling pressure that that was a way to prove that they were free in Christ. To prove that they were better followers of Jesus. And so Paul says something that's kind of mind-blowing and would have been mind-blowing particularly to the Jewish audience that's listening. He says, look, circumcision and uncircumcision counts for nothing. Well, that's a big deal, right? And that's not the only place he says this. He says, he says whether you this or that, what you are physically, what, what your nationality is, what the physical representation of that is, doesn't matter at all. What matters is your calling, right? He says... Circumcision, uncircumcision counts for nothing. The only thing that matters is obedience to the commands of God. Well, that's an interesting thing to say, because if you're a Jewish person reading this letter, you would say, hey, buddy, being circumcised is following the commands of God. So how is it that out of your mouth you say, these physical things don't matter. The pressures of the culture, the things that people would demand of us in addition to our calling, they're insignificant. The only thing that matters is following the commands of God. When circumcision is a a command of God, so how do those things work? Well, for us today and for them, they would need to be listening in context to Paul's approach to what he thinks of as the law of God, what he thinks of as the commandments of God, because his perception of it is maybe different than yours and certainly different than the Jewish audience that would have read this. When we think about Paul's perception of the law of God, what Paul sees himself under is the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians, there are about 20 verses I could read you. I'm going to read you about six. 1 Corinthians 9.21, we'll study this next year. It says in 1 Corinthians 9.21, Paul says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, there is a way to be under the law of God, but it isn't the law of God as people have perceived it. It's being in accordance with the law of Christ. So then the question for us is, well, what then is the law of Christ and how is that different? Good, I'm glad you asked. Galatians chapter 2, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Similarly, in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Right? We all could see in Galatians chapter 5 verse 14, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul here can say with authority in 1 Corinthians chapter 17, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he can say circumcision, uncircumcision, those things don't matter. What matters is following the commands of God. What's the, what's the command of God? Well, the law of Christ is love God and love your neighbor, right? If you love God, all these other things are taken care of. That's a direct quote from Jesus, right? Paul says all of this stuff that we do to pressure each other, all of this pressure that we put on ourselves to be something else, to be this or to be that, to be married or unmarried. People going, oh no, the good Christians are the celibate ones or the good Christians are the ones who celebrate Christmas or don't celebrate Christmas or the ones who do this or do that. He goes, none of that stuff matters. What matters is being obedient to the heart of God and following the law of Christ. The next example he gives, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? And I want, to, I want to be careful here. The, the ESV has, in some ways, they've softened this a little, right? By using the word bondservant, for a modern American audience, we hear bondservant, and that doesn't feel necessarily troubling to us, right? Because it's sort of taken a step away from the word slave. I want to be really careful to, to be clear that what, who he is talking to are enslaved people in, in the first century. So bondservant doesn't mean anything to you. When I say the word slave, it should mean something to you because of the horrendous history we have in this country of forcibly taking people against their will and forcing them into uh, manual labor to serve the, the other people as if they were property, right? The things that have been done to enslave people are in no way endorsed in the scripture. The things that have been done to enslave people are absolutely spoken against in scripture, even though historically in America, there are Christians who have used the scriptures to justify those horrendous things, Right? I don't, want to be, I don't want to be vague about this at all. I want to be very clear. He is going to talk about enslavement. But when he talks about enslavement in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the kind of enslavement he's talking about uh, is not the kind of enslavement that we have in the history of our country, right? So I want you to see the two things separate. What he's talking about there, there, there was one third of the population in Corinth, some people estimate, would have been enslaved people. But they weren't all people who were taken against their will and forced to do hard labor for the sake of someone else. And they weren't necessarily thought of as property the way human beings have been thought of as property in this country, Right? The, the way in which enslavement worked, there were people who would enslave themselves to a master even for a period of time, sometimes to do accounting and sometimes to do you know, work that was less than oppressive. And they would do so by choice. But what Paul says here to those who were enslaved, those who were bondservants, he says in 21, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. It's clear that Paul is saying... You don't need to become free in order to be used by God. You don't have to be a freed person in order for God to use you. If he called you and you were enslaved, God can use you in that environment. And anybody who tells you you got to be something else in order to be used by God has diminished the actual power and the grace of the call of God. 
But he does, in a parenthetical, say, hey, if you have the opportunity to get your freedom, you should take it, right? So we see his advocacy for that. We would see that also in the book of Philemon, if you want to study that, right? Paul is not advocating for people to remain enslaved, but what he is saying is that if your perception is that you cannot be used by God in that context, then you've diminished the power of God's grace to use you in the spot where you are, right? He says, if you're you're a bondservant, If you're a bondservant, when you were called, don't be concerned about it, right? He says this in 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. What's What's that all about? He says... He says those who were free when they were called became servants of God or, or the enslaved people of God. And those who were enslaved, they became God's freedmen. Well, what's he saying? He's saying that the call of God is the great equalizer, right? That the call of God is the great equalizer. It's the thing that puts us all on the same level. We've talked about that even recently or a couple weeks ago. We talked about the fact that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That all of us are broken. That all of us are in need of resurrection life and redemption and atonement. That all of us are equally chosen and called to follow God. That there is no distinction and that there's nothing you can add to God's love for you. There's nothing you can do or be that will make you more lovable or more usable. And there's also no situation, cultural or social that you can be in that will somehow make you unusable by God until such time as you become into a different setting or a different station, right? Now there can be sin in our lives. There can be sin in our lives that needs to be pruned out and God will assist with that. There can be things that are hindrances that way when we're living in opposition to the commandments of God to love him and love others, right? If we're not living in obedience to God's law, then yeah, there can be things that that are transformed, but those things can be transformed no matter what your station no matter what language you speak, no matter how much money you make, no matter what color your skin, no matter what country you come from, the thing that levels us all is that we become God's people. And those who were free when God called them became his servants. And those who were servants when God called them became free in in Christ. We are equalized in Christ. He's saying the main thing is be devoted to God and to following him faithfully. The, The emphasis here is of the fact that God's call is enough. That being in Christ, listen to me, church, being in Christ is enough, right? You, you might currently be thinking that if you, could just make, if you could just get the promotion, right? If you could just find the perfect husband or the perfect wife, if you could just finish up these next couple of years of school or whatever, that then you'll be set, you'll be ready to serve God. What, what Paul is saying here to the church at Corinth and what he's saying to us is, God called you like you are, and he will use you like you are. One of the big things we emphasize around here is the idea of circles, right? And if you've been around Fullerton Free for a while, you've heard us talk about that. But the idea of circles is is the affirmation that I'm not the one that's best suited to share the gospel with your friends, right? That you're actually better equipped to share the gospel with your friends than me. I, I can give a speech. I can preach a sermon, I can share the gospel, and maybe God would use that. But there isn't anybody better equipped to reveal Christ to your coworkers and your family and your neighbors than you. God wired you specifically to be used in a specific circle, a specific context, and you're actually more equipped for that than anybody else you know. And so we're set free to be the people that we are as God called us. And it doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich or black or white. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. You don't have to change yourself in order to be usable by God. Galatians chapter 3, 
Verse 23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons, and that could say sons or daughters, sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you were all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What I want you to hear this morning is that if you're feeling pressure from the outside world to change your station, to change your culture, to change the way you talk or the way you speak or the way you conduct. If you're feeling pressure because somewhere along the way someone has told you you could be more usable by God if you were different than you are, then what you're, what you're saying is a denial of the power of God to use you just like you are, that somehow he made a mistake, right? What Paul is affirming is that the way God called you, he will use you in that. And he can use you in whatever circumstance you're in. He's not saying you can't change, he tells the, slave, the enslaved person if they want to change and they can get their freedom, they should take it. What he doesn't mean here is that you can't change your station, but what he's affirming here is that there is no need to change your station or your status, right? Because your calling in Christ is enough. My friend Brent, uh, many years ago, my friend Brent had planted a bunch of new flowers outside of his house in the garden. And uh, they had gone to run some errands and do some other things. And they came back and uh, when they walked in their front door, all their flowers had been uh, pulled up and set on the kitchen table. They were cleaned off. They'd been washed off. And there's no dirt. There was no grime or any of that. They were just pristine looking flowers with their roots sitting on the table. And they were like, who, who did this to our garden? And they found their daughter and uh, they were like, what happened? And she was like, well, I love those beautiful flowers, but they were in all that gross dirt. And so I cleaned off all that gross dirt and now look how pretty they are, right? And I think sometimes we think about that with regard to our own lives. Like, man, I will really be something beautiful if I could just get out of this situation I'm in. And what Paul is saying here and what we want to be able to hear is that you, you are in just the right place to grow. To become more like Jesus. It doesn't mean you can't change. It doesn't mean you shouldn't want a, a, you know, a promotion. Or that you shouldn't want to be married. Or that you can't remain single or whatever. All those things are fine. Those just can't be the driving thing in your life. And you don't have to change your status. In order to be usable by God. He says the rule I have in all the churches is. Trust in the place where God called you. And who he made you to be. And let your being in Christ. Be enough. Let it be enough. It is enough. You belong to Christ. Your obligations and your freedom are reshaped by God's calling no matter who you are. Your calling to call upon the name of the Lord and to live in obedience to the law of Christ is everything and nothing else is everything. Let me say that again a little bit slower. Your calling to call upon the name of the Lord and to live in obedience to the law of Christ, that is, loving God and loving others, is everything. And nothing else is everything. God can use you right where you are. God can use you just like you are. Before I go, there, there is one last thing. I thought about this, and I didn't say this in the first service, but there is a temptation in a message like this to go, yeah, I'm enough. I'm in Christ. That's good. Good for me. Look at me. I'm something, right? Uh, allow that affirmation, as true as it is, to be a catalyst to push you into action. Does that make sense? So allow it to be a catalyst to go, you know what? God can use me just like I am. How can I serve Christ and others, right? Rather than just going, yeah, I'm good enough. 
and remaining sort of selfishly focused. Let's be people who go, the calling of God is everything about who I am. And therefore, I'm going to let that be a catalyst to go, how do I honor God and love other people in his name in the days ahead? Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us as you do a week in and week out, that you would stir in us an understanding of your word, that we wouldn't just see what's written here, that we wouldn't just get a sense of what Paul's trying to say to people in Corinth uh, 2,000 years ago, but that we would understand its relevance to both the pressure we put on ourselves and the pressure that Christians sometimes put on us, the pressure that the culture puts on us to need to add something, to need to change something. To be able to somehow earn a little bit on top of what your grace has accomplished. God, would you help us to hold fast to your grace and your grace alone, your salvation alone? Would we be dedicated to the law of Christ and recognize that all this other stuff is meaningless? Would we let your calling upon our life be everything? And would we remember that nothing else is everything? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.